Well, this morning we are going to continue to marvel at the things that Jesus does and says and how amazing he is uh, by looking at Matthew uh, chapter 8, that is page number 1507, and we'll be in verses 18 through 34. Matthew chapter 8, 18 to 34, 1,507. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat with his disciples and his disciples followed him. Without a warning, a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask, as always at this time, that you would speak to us through your word, that we would understand who Jesus is, that we would be moved by faith to love him and to be drawn to him and to follow him. We pray in his name. Amen. So as human beings, we tend to uh, romanticize certain ways of life, whether it's marriage and children or the single life or a life spent uh, pursuing our career and our hobbies. And what we do is we emphasize in our mind all of the really great things about that kind of life. So if it's marriage and children, we imagine a life connected to our soulmates with uh, always going to Little League games and never-ending backyard barbecues, right? Or if it's a single life, we imagine a life of getting to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, no one to answer to, not tied down, a life of total freedom. 
But the truth is, uh, the more we do this, the more of a letdown we're setting ourselves up for if things don't go how we had hoped, which of course they won't. And to make it worse, uh, we live in a culture that makes us feel like there's something wrong with us or that we have somehow done something wrong if things don't go our way. We uh, didn't try hard enough. We married the wrong person. But when it comes to following Jesus, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't try and sell following him to us. He doesn't try to make it seem romantic or inspirational. He doesn't draw up a hallmark greeting card version of what life following him will be like because he's looking for true followers. He's looking for people that aren't going to be disappointed no matter how life turns out because they know they're following him. He's brutally honest. He wants us to count the cost because he knows that if we have true faith, we will still follow him no matter how difficult it is because he is worth it. We don't need never-ending weekly events filled with great worship experiences to follow Jesus. We don't need Jesus to promise us our best life now so we'll follow him. He just tells us the truth. He gives us eyes to see and we will follow him and worship him no matter what because he's worth it. Now, there are many wonderful things about following Jesus, which is why Jesus has to be clear with us about the cost. Imagine hearing Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount and hearing that great authority and seeing it as he taught. And then imagine walking with him down from the mountain and seeing him heal the leper and heal the centurion's servant. And then everyone gathers at Peter's house and literally every person who's demon-possessed and every person who is sick is healed. I mean, you, you can't get more romantic or inspirational than seeing something like that. Who wouldn't want to follow the man who literally has all of the answers? The man who has the power to heal any disease and cast out every demon. And so this morning, Jesus begins to show us the real cost of following him. And there are two points this morning. First, following Jesus is difficult, but following Jesus is worth it. So first, we meet a, a teacher of the law uh, this would have been a guy who had an Ivy League education uh, juxtaposed uh, to Jesus' more uh, blue-collar carpenter education. This is a guy who normally hangs out with Pharisees. He studies the Old Testament for a living. Uh, the kind of guy who we normally see fighting and arguing with Jesus. But apparently this teacher of the law had been following Jesus around, learning from him long enough that he was considered a disciple. Not a true disciple, but somebody who'd been kind of hanging around long enough that people thought he was learning from Jesus. He must have heard him teach the Sermon on the Mount. He probably watched him heal the leper and the centurion's servant 
and all the sick and the demon-possessed at Peter's house. He must have had a really romantic idea about what it was going to be like to follow Jesus. And so all of a sudden, Jesus gives a command to his disciples to leave the crowd, get on the boat, and cross the lake. And the teacher, he, he steps out of the crowd and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, apparently Jesus knew, because he knows everything, that this guy doesn't really get what following him is going to mean. First of all, he calls him teacher instead of Lord. Which means he thinks Jesus is someone full of knowledge and truth, which is true. But true followers, like the leper and the centurion we met last week, what do they call him? Lord. They call him Lord. And as the Lord, there's nothing Jesus cannot ask of his followers. But a teacher, well, a teacher, you're free to accept or reject whatever they say. But not with the Lord. And to follow Jesus means there's nowhere to lay your head in this life. It's a life of self-denial. It's a life of daily battle with sin and temptation. It's a life that no one would actually choose on their own. It's difficult to be uncomfortable. It's difficult to deny ourselves. Then another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Even in our culture, life stops if our father dies. It doesn't matter how expensive the plane ticket is. It doesn't matter what projects we have going on at work. And in Jesus' day, there was absolutely nothing more important than being there to bury your father, which is why we know this man's father is not actually dead. Because if this man's father were dead, he wouldn't be here talking to Jesus. He would be at the funeral. At that time, if somebody died, the burial took place within a day or two following their death. Which means what this man is really doing is he's giving Jesus an excuse. He wants to want to follow Jesus, but not just yet. His real commitment is to something else. But the scriptures say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you choose not to follow Jesus because you want to go do the thing that you think is more important than following Jesus right now, you might never hear his voice again. Then Jesus got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. The word translated storm here is the Greek word seismos. And if you have your English ears on, which we all do, you probably hear the word seismic in there. And that's because every other time we see this word in the New Testament, it's always translated earthquake. So Matthew is telling us that this just isn't any storm. Remember, at least four of the people in that boat were trained fishermen who had spent their entire lives on this lake. It would take a seismic storm for them to think they're going to die on this lake. 
But Jesus purposely led them into waters so terrifying that they thought they were going to die. He took them to a place where even their their greatest ability as fishermen failed them. He purposely took them to the brink where their only hope was to cry out, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Because this is what it's like to follow Jesus. It's difficult. The final story of this passage is a story about Jesus healing two demon-possessed men. Uh, They were possessed with so many demons that when he casts them out, they take over an entire herd of pigs who promptly run off the cliff into the sea. And then we read this. It says, Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This whole story takes place in a Gentile region on the other side of the lake called the Gadarenes. And uh, we know it's a Gentile region because there's a herd of pigs there. And in Israel, you would never find a herd of pigs because pigs were considered unclean by Jewish religion. And since we know that Jesus came only for the lost sheep of Israel, likely what's happening here is Jesus goes to the other side of the lake to a settlement of Jews who were living there selling pigs to Gentiles. And even though Jesus had just healed two men who were so violent and dangerous because of the demons living inside them that no one would even go near their cemetery, even though Jesus had just done that, these people would rather Jesus go away because he cost them a herd of pigs. Which reminds us that Jesus owns everything, even our property. And he can do with it whatever he wants. This is the reality of following Jesus. It is very difficult. There might be no place to lay your head. We probably won't be totally comfortable this side of heaven. It might feel like abandoning your dying father because all of our commitments to people and habits and hobbies and dreams all become secondary to following Jesus. We will face storms in this life and we'll have to deny ourselves all the sinful comforts of this world. We'll have to face the storm and our only comfort will be an invisible God. We might know he's with us, but it might feel like he's asleep. And we'll live as if everything we own belongs to Jesus and that he can do with it whatever he wants. This is not romantic. This is not inspirational. It's very difficult. Now, we we do tend to emphasize all the good things about following Jesus. Like forgiveness of sins and how becoming a Christian gives meaning and purpose to our life. We talk about the joy of the Lord and the peace that surpasses understanding. We talk about the community of faith and the hope of heaven. These are all super wonderful things and all very true. But for those of us who've been following Jesus long enough, we know that many times we have to accept all these things simply by faith. As we struggle through trials and temptations and hardship and suffering, 
The truth is that our life might actually feel worse after we become a Christian. And if our understanding of Christianity doesn't include having no place to lay our head, then we're never going to follow Jesus if it means giving up comfort and security. And we might lose our faith if all of a sudden, like Jesus his whole life, we have no place to lay our head. And can you imagine what people would think of us if we didn't go to our father's funeral? Not that Jesus is actually suggesting we don't go to our father's funeral. But just imagine the social ostracization, if that's even a word, that would, that would happen if we were that person. Because following Jesus might mean being on the outside of society or even the outside of our own family, looking in just like that. Following Jesus means he is our top priority above every person, every habit, every hobby, and every dream. And Jesus might lead us into waters so terrifying that we think we're going to die. He might lead us into places where even our greatest abilities fail us. Where the fear or the sinful temptation is so strong that we cry out to him, Lord, save me. Following Jesus means he is the Lord of our money, our sexuality, our power, our reputation, and our comfort. It means he rules us by his word and his spirit, where he is totally free to give or to take away. But in spite of all that, following Jesus is worth it. C.S. Lewis once said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. He who has God and everything this world could possibly offer has no more than he who has God only. You see, all throughout this passage, we see evidence of who Jesus is and why he is worth following, even if he is all we have. Even if he calls us down the most difficult path in this life that we could imagine. In verse 20, he calls himself the Son of Man. He tells the first would-be follower, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself and it's kind of brilliant because it says nothing and everything all at the same time. Uh, it says nothing because it's really just the equivalent of him calling himself a human being. It was a, it was a common designation for people at that time. Uh, he might as well have said, the human being has no place to lay his head, which probably sounded odd to everybody back then, but didn't really raise their awareness uh, his other options were to call himself the Messiah or the Son of God, and that might have started a little bit more than he wanted to at the time. Yet calling himself the Son of Man also says everything. Because buried in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7 is a vision of heaven where Daniel sees a person there with God, but who, who seems to be just like God. He has God's glory and God's power and authority, and then God gives him a kingdom. 
And when Daniel first sees this person, he describes him as one like a son of man. And then an angel tells Daniel that after God's people suffer through the evil of this world, they too will possess the kingdom that God gave to the son of man. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's saying that he is the one who will receive the kingdom from God that all those who follow him will get to possess after the suffering of this life is over. You see, the truth is, whether we follow Jesus or not, there's actually no guarantee that life will be safe, comfortable, or easy. Whether we follow Jesus or not, we are committed to some Lord. If we don't serve Jesus, we will serve money, power, pleasure, or what other people think of us. And those are very harsh masters to serve. So the real choice is, are we going to trust ourselves or are we going to trust the Son of Man? We can trust ourselves and and try to hold on to all of our stuff and our own strength or we can trust the Son of Man who can and might do whatever he wants with us. But he promises That on the other side of all that suffering, there's a kingdom that will never end, that we will get to possess with him forever. And even though he might call us into a storm, he will be with us. We all know non-Christians who seem to live charmed lives. They might go their whole life without a major tragedy and they can even seem happier and more content than we have ever been, if for no other reason than they don't have to fight a daily battle against sin and temptation like Christians do. And we can be tempted to think that maybe the real relief in this life would be to just give in to our sinful desires and stop fighting because look at how great they have it. And then on top of that, If we're suffering with sickness or the loss of a loved one or the loss of financial security, it can kind of seem like things are backwards. And we can can wonder, God, do you even care? But even if someone manages to avoid the storms of this life, there is one storm that we're all destined to go through. We will all walk through the valley of the shadow of death one day. And only those who have Jesus with us will fear no evil because only his rod and his staff can comfort us. And if we know this now, he's there to comfort us now, no matter what we're going through. Because only those who know Jesus is with them can cry out to him in the storm, Lord, save us, or we will drown. Because we also know that Jesus isn't just with us in the storm. He led us into it so he can be trusted. But the disciples, when the storm was at its peak, and they realized it's too much for them to handle, they cry out to Jesus. And he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this 
Even the winds and the waves obey him. And here's what's fascinating to me about this. Jesus calls these men, you of little faith. And he asks them why they're so afraid. But it seems to me like they have a lot of faith. And it seems to me if you're in a a storm like this, that it makes perfect sense to be afraid. These disciples are so different than the other two would-be disciples that we met earlier who just want to want to follow Jesus. They're so different than the, the men on the other side of the sea who would rather have pigs than Jesus. They left everything to follow him. They heard what he said to the first two disciples about there not being a place to lay his head and the dead burying their own dead, and yet they still followed him onto the boat. At least four of them are trained fishermen, so they probably could tell a storm was coming. And they followed him onto the boat anyway, because they trusted him. They knew who to cry out to when the earthquake-like storm was too much for them. So how is it possible that these men have little faith? How can Jesus think they shouldn't have been afraid? Here's what this means. The kind of faith that we see the disciples displaying here is is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. This is really little faith. So can you imagine how wonderful it would be to have great faith? The kind of faith that is confident that Jesus is with you and in control of the storms of tragedy and temptation, so much that you consider it joy and truly do have peace that surpasses understanding. Notice again, not being afraid, not being anxious is directly connected to how much faith we have. The most helpful cure for anxiety is more faith. Can you imagine having the kind of faith that is bold in sharing the gospel? The kind of faith that is willing to let go of comfort and security just to see the kingdom of God proclaimed. The kind of faith that is willing to risk the social consequences of missing your father's funeral to give someone else the chance to repent of their sins and believe that Jesus really is the only person who can save them. The kind of faith that is willing to let your business be destroyed if it means two men can be free from slavery to demons and in their right mind. This kind of faith doesn't wonder who this man is or even puzzle over how he can stop the wind and the waves. But this kind of faith knows that only God has this kind of power And that Jesus is the God-man who controls the wind and the waves. Friends, can we imagine how different our lives would be if we lived every moment as if the God who formed the mountains and stilled the roaring seas was really with us, giving us strength and endurance and showing us grace and mercy in every one of our trials and temptations. And it's in this moment here, in this 
church service, right? Where God comes in his fiery, glorious presence into his temple and grows our faith. The kind of faith that knows we're really no different than the two men living in the graveyard on the other side of the sea. When Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So it's easy to read a story like this and, and picture these men in sort of the modern equivalent, right, as, as homeless people enslaved to methamphetamines, living in the alley, out of their mind with anger, so violent that no one will go near them. And it's easy to think, yeah, somebody like that really needs Jesus. Or to think how wonderful it would be just to see somebody like that restored and put into their right mind. Which is true. Because one of the main points of this passage is the fact that Jesus has control over the natural world and the spiritual world. Over the seen and the unseen. But if we have eyes to see, another point of the story is that apart from faith in Jesus, we're all like these men. These men are literally enslaved to demons, but without Jesus, we're all enslaved to sin and just as big a threat to ourselves and each other. Apart from faith in Jesus, in some way, we're all out of our mind and insane, trusting ourselves and the world instead of the Son of Man. And look what Jesus does. He just comes to save them. He left the glory of the crowd on the other side, everybody wanting to get at him, he just dismisses that and leaves. And he comes through the storm, just like he left the glory of heaven and came to this earth to come and to free us from sin and, and death. And just like these men, he didn't ask us if we wanted to be free, but in his kindness and his grace, he just came and freed us, and he put us into our right minds. <laughs> he opened our eyes to see that he is the Son of Man and the Son of God, and that apart from faith in him, we're just as foolish as these demons trying to have as much fun as we can before the appointed time of judgment. And Jesus does not have to romanticize any of this. He doesn't have to make it into an inspirational hallmark card decision. He can be brutally honest with us about what life is like following him. Because Jesus knows the reality of life. He knows that we know that we're all sinners. And he knows that we know that we're all going to die. He knows that we know that life is hard. And he's telling us that he is our only hope. He has the power over all of everything that we'll face in the natural world and the spiritual world. And he has the power to free us from it. He has the power to be with us in it. And he has the power to keep us through it all the way to the end because he is the son of man. He is the son of God. And he is our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we're grateful. We're grateful that Jesus is honest with us. We're grateful to know that following him is not a life of 
having all of our felt needs met and all of our desires fulfilled. But it's a life of having our desires changed where we love him more and more. It's a desire of having, uh, it's a life of having new hopes and new dreams of walking with him and, and living as his child. It's, it's a life where we know that no matter what we go through, Jesus is with us, that he led us into it, that he has a purpose for it, and that he is our king and our only hope. Help us grow in the faith to know this is true, no matter what we go through. In his name we pray, amen.